For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 18, verse 24, and then we're going to truck through 41 verses. We're going to be looking at five narratives that seem to be disconnected, and yet the common theme that runs throughout is that there was this powerful movement of the Spirit through the city of Ephesus. And so we want to ask the question, what powers a movement of God? We're going to be trying to answer some of these questions. Now, there are several indications in this, this chapter that God was moving in a real powerful way in Ephesus, really throughout Asia Minor, that entire region. And uh, it doesn't seem like an exaggeration when Luke says that nearly all the people in Asia Minor were coming to Christ. We know that many cities uh, were being flooded with believers in Christ as they encountered the gospel. Let's get into our narrative. We've got a lot to cover. First narrative involves this guy named Apollos. In Acts 18, verse 24, we're told, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. So we know a little bit about this guy, Apollos. Luke tells us that he's from Alexandria in Egypt. This is a prominent city in the ancient world. We know some information about Alexandria that it was an intellectual epicenter in the ancient world. Um, it was highly Hellenized. Alexander the Great, as he was conquering pretty much the known world in 333 BC, came across Alexandria, conquered the city, and they actually named the city after him. And so this town, this area, was, uh, you know, a Greek city. So Apollos was actually um, familiar with Greek culture, and we're also told that he was an eloquent speaker, or as some translations puts it, he was learned. So he not only grew up in this milieu where there was Greek culture there, but also he understood the culture and literature of the time. He was learned. It's likely that he studied philosophy, that he probably learned the art of rhetoric. So he was an incredibly smart guy, insanely um, knowledgeable, and also we're told that he was a Jew. Again, the ancient, man, uh, ancient documents tell us that there was a, a prominent Jewish community there in Alexandria, and that they actually produced the Greek translation of the Old Testament, otherwise known as the Septuagint there in Alexandria. So there was a burgeoning Jewish community, but also there was a, it, this city was Hellenized. So Apollos had the benefit of both understanding Jewish culture, which was an advantage, but also he understood Greek culture as well, so he could mix in pretty much in any city he traveled to. Also, we're told that he knew the scriptures well. So this guy was a scholar of the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament in and out. And we were told by Luke that he had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. 
So he was teaching about Jesus. He was familiar with Jesus. However, he only knew about John's baptism. So apparently he was maybe a follower of John the Baptist or he heard the teachings of John the Baptist and clung to it. He believed that he needed to repent for the kingdom of God was near and that probably Jesus was the chosen one. But maybe he didn't understand the implications of the cross fully. So when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they actually took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. So instead of busting him out publicly, being like, "Um, by the way, I think you got it wrong, they pulled him aside and they explained to him more fully the meaning of Christ and his cross. So at that point, he grasped the message of Christ and actually became a believer. Paulus had been thinking about going to Achaia and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia asking them to welcome him. When he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who by God's grace believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate, obviously because he was learned in the scriptures, and he explained to them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So he was probably referring back to the Old Testament. Remember the New Testament wasn't written at this time. So he was showing them proof from the Old Testament that these details about Jesus' life actually lined up with the Old Testament. So Priscilla and Aquila actually stumbled across a marquee player in the early, in the early church, this guy named Apollos. He actually made a huge impact for God. Turns out that later on in the early church, there were factions arising, especially in the area of uh, Corinth, which Paul visited um, a couple weeks ago when we studied. And they, he actually mentions Apollos as one of the leading figures which the people were siding with and identifying with. In 1 Corinthians uh, 1, verse 11 through 13, Paul says, For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I'm a follower of Apollos. Others, I'm of Peter. And others, I'm of Christ. So there are these factions arising in Corinth. And by this time, Apollos was so prominent, even just a few years later, that people were identifying with him. So this guy must have been an incredibly charismatic guy, very persuasive, and he was a great leader. And so I think the first lesson we can learn from this passage would be that God placed Priscilla and Aquila into Apollos' life. God sensed Apollos' Apollos's, um, potential and also his spiritual hunger, and he placed Christian workers orchestrated this to meet him and actually lead him to Christ. All right, narrative number two. Paul encounters John's disciples. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Paul said, Do you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. What baptism did you experience, he asked. They replied, the baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, 
But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would later come, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were, they were eager and ready. It was almost like they were waiting for the missing piece of the puzzle. And as soon as they heard it, it just snapped into their minds. Then Paul laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. It's curious that Luke says about 12 men. Was it 12 or was it, you know, 15? I don't know. But um, this passage actually has become famous because the so-called Pentecostal movement has clung on to this passage as a proof text for this so-called baptism of the Holy Spirit. The idea behind the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that you actually become a believer in Christ and you receive the Holy Spirit, but at some later time, maybe weeks, months, or even years later, as you're awaiting the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you receive what's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where God actually empowers you through the Holy Spirit to carry out these powerful, miraculous works and that you become effective in serving God. But the question that comes up is, does this passage actually support this view? I think when we do a comparison here, on the one hand, you have the Pentecostal view, and on the other, we should compare it to what this passage actually says. In the Pentecostal view, they would say this passage shows that people come to Christ at one time and receive a second baptism of, of the Spirit sometime later. So they would point to these 12 men hearing the message of Christ and believing, and then sometime later when Paul actually lays hands on them, that's when the Holy Spirit descends upon them, and they start speaking in tongues and prophesying, a clear sign of what they would call the baptism or the second baptism of the Spirit. But this passage seems to indicate that these guys were actually believers in the Old Testament sense. In other words, they possessed faith, but they were somewhat unclear about the object of their faith. That is, the death of Jesus Christ. So, these guys didn't have the full picture. You know, it's clear that a believer in Christ must have the Holy Spirit. Paul says this in Romans 8 verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So the Bible teaches that when you come into a personal relationship with God through Christ, at that moment, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, actually comes and makes his presence within your life. He comes into you. And that's proof that you actually are a believer. But in this case, we read, Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So clearly these guys didn't possess the Spirit yet. They were believers in the Old Testament sense, just like Apollos. So when Paul explained to them further the meaning of Christ, it's at that point that they actually came to believe. The Pentecostal view would say that we should view the delay between belief and the Spirit as normative to the Christian experience. 
You know, they would look at passages, for example, like in Acts chapter 2. Remember months ago, maybe six months ago when we started reading this book, Jesus told the disciples, why don't you guys wait 50 days? And on the day of Pentecost, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the best explanation for why Jesus told the disciples that they needed to wait 50 days had to do with a fulfilled prophecy. The, the day of Pentecost actually represented the harvest. And so, figuratively, the day of Pentecost represented the harvest of souls when people came to Christ. And that's why the Holy Spirit came on that day. And so we can explain why there was a delay in that case. Another example that they would give also would be in Acts chapter 8, when the Samaritans actually came to believe. And we're told that they came to believe in Christ, and then sometime later, Peter and the other apostles showed up, and at that moment, they received the Spirit. Probably days, maybe a week later. It's not clear. But why would there be a delay? The answer, there was incredible racism and hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. So the Jewish people would have been very reluctant to accept that a Samaritan person actually came to Christ and received the Spirit. So God wanted to make sure that Peter was there and present to see with his own eyes that the Holy Spirit actually came upon these guys so he could testify, no, God actually includes these people into his kingdom. And so uh, I think the Bible actually teaches that belief and the outpouring of the Spirit actually take place simultaneously. And they tend to exaggerate how this took place, the, the chronology of events that take place in Acts chapter 19. I mean, they came to believe, then they got baptized, and as soon as they came out of the water, we're told that Paul laid hands upon them, and then they received the Spirit. I mean, that might have been a matter of minutes, not like days, months, or years. I think really we can gather something a little bit bigger than this. I think there's a, a bigger principle involved, which is that you shouldn't base an entire teaching on narrative sections of the Bible because you could go wrong by doing that. Um, these are descriptions of what happened they aren't actually prescribing what we need to do or what's normal in the Christian life. So we, we need to be careful. And if we are to use narrative portions of Scripture to develop a principle, a biblical principle, it needs to be grounded in specific teaching, as we'll see in a little bit. All right, narrative three, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. That's what they used to call Christianity before um, they started referring to people as Christians. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So... We don't get much information about this guy, Tyrannus, but he apparently owned this lecture hall, this school building. Tyrannus actually means tyrant in Greek. So 
It might be that this guy was a pretty hard teacher. Maybe, that, maybe his pupils actually named him the tyrant because he was so hard on them. But either way, he would teach in the cool part of the morning, and then he would rent out his lecture hall in the heat of the day. And that's when Paul and the other guys would occupy it and start, you know, teaching the Bible to these guys, these new believers. Well, this went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard of the word of the Lord. To date, this might be the longest period of time that we know of anyway, where Paul spent in a city, two years. So he spent a long time equipping and training these brand new believers, teaching them the Bible. And uh, Luke makes this connection, that this time that Paul spent training and equipping these new believers in the Bible, that people throughout the province of Asia, which is, you know, today modern-day Turkey, a pretty large region, both Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord. So a movement exploded as a result of this. And I think this points to the Bible envisioning Christian leaders empowering and equipping other believers to do Christian work. You know, in our modern American church, our country's filled with, you know, mega churches. And usually at the top of this hierarchy in a megachurch, you have, you know, an individual, a man or a woman who has a magnetic personality and can draw, you know, hundreds and sometimes thousands or tens of thousands of people to come to their church. So everything really centers around that individual, whereas when we read the New Testament, we see a different model altogether. That it's not about some prominent individual who is able to draw people to him or herself, but that the leaders of the early church actually gave themselves over to training and equipping ordinary believers just like me and you in order to carry out the work of service. This is what Paul says later to the Ephesian believers in his letter to them. He says in Ephesians 4, verse 12 and 13, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do this work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So the main task of the leadership of the church is to devote themselves to training and equipping people. And the difference between these two models really are night and day. On the one hand, when you have the, the megachurch model where you have, you know, one person standing at the pinnacle and calling all the people to him or herself, you know, you might win a, a number of people that way. But really that approach compared to the approach that the Bible advocates for here is the difference between addition and multiplication. As you train and equip normal Christians, just like me and you, to teach the Bible, to serve at a pretty sophisticated level, 
to impart the life of Christ to younger believers and help them grow into maturity and to motivate them to be able to do the same for others, you can see exponential growth coming out of that. And so I think the principle we can gather from this would be that equipping actually fuels a movement. You know, God has to be the one to set the the spark that lights the movement on fire. But training and equipping believers in this way actually fuels it. You know, I was thinking about our past, our history here, and uh, I remember in about 2008, um, you know, we were sort of in a place in our college ministry where we were a little bit flat in terms of our growth. I think we had about, you know, maybe 600 people showing up, a decent amount of people. And, you know, we were glad about that. And I remember in the midst of this time where we felt a little bit discouraged because we weren't seeing a ton of growth, we decided it might be good for us to develop sort of a training program for people who wanted more, who wanted to get deeper equipping to learn the Bible on a deeper level, who are willing to sacrifice, you know, 18 months of, you know, giving up their Wednesday night for three hours every single week in order to learn the Bible at a pretty high level. And we uh, decided we were going to put this thing together. It was called the Leadership Training Class. And, you know, at the time we were doing it and people were very excited, very motivated uh, to take this class. And then a couple years later, um, really the next year, in 2009, something incredible happened in our ministry where God brought a flood of people uh, who were spiritually hungry. And within a couple years, we grew from about 600 to 1,200 people just in our college ministry. It was unbelievable. I mean, you know, you would show up to your home church and you'd have five or six new people every single week and it was not uncommon to have, you know, each, each of these years have uh, close to 300 or more people coming to Christ in our ministry. I mean, I, I remember as a young believer hearing about these incredible movements of God and praying that God would just at least let me see that in my lifetime. Allow me to be at the epicenter or something like that. And I just remember thinking to myself, this is incredible. But at the time, I, I didn't think that teaching these classes was really um, leading up to that. And yet, it's very clear now that God was raising up a workforce for the tidal wave he knew he was going to splash on us. And so, in a way, that's exactly what was happening here in Acts chapter 19. That, that God was um, calling on Paul to continue to fuel this movement that he sparked in Ephesus. All right, narrative number four. One of my favorites, the seven sons of Sceva. God gave Paul the, the power to perform unusual miracles. When the handkerchiefs or aprons that he had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Okay, this is one of the weirder parts of the New Testament. Apparently, when Paul would be working in the hot hours of the day, 
you know, making tents, he would have, you know, his handkerchief and his, his apron on. At the end of the day, people would grab it and, uh, you know, people would actually touch these handkerchiefs or his apron and they would experience healing. Uh, now, skeptics of the Bible look at something like this and just say, well, this obviously validates our skepticism about the Bible. I mean, are we seriously to believe something like this? We have to look at what Luke actually says, that these were indeed unusual miracles. The, the early church period, the first 30 years of the church's life, was unusual. And for him to say that these were unusual miracles must have meant that this was uh, way out of the ordinary insanely uh, different than what they had experienced up to this point. So even Luke acknowledges that. And, you know, I, I don't think that we need to take the skeptical view, such as, you know, some who are critical of the Bible and saying that this is just, uh, you know, magic or a fairy tale. But I also think that we shouldn't go to the opposite extreme of trying to mimic this such as some, you know, American televangelists who actually bless handkerchiefs and send them to sick people via mail in order to heal them. So we need to avoid both of these. I think um, we need to see that this was an unusual case in the early church. Well, anyway, a group of Jews were traveling from town to town casting out evil spirits. Apparently they were doing this for money. They would go around casting out evil spirits um, probably to earn an income. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, leading priests, were doing this. So apparently they picked up on this fact that Paul was actually casting out these evil spirits that were imprisoning people, and they heard that it was effective. So they, they ripped that right out of Paul's playbook and started using it as well and saying, in the name of Jesus, who this guy Paul preaches, Apparently, it was working in some of these cases. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? <laughs> then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. I don't know why this happens, but you know, there are numerous cases in the Bible where people are fleeing naked you know, back then they were wearing, like, tunics, so it was easy to kind of disrobe them. Uh, a lot harder than, you know, depancing somebody today. So apparently the, the evil spirit was, you know, grasping on to these guys and their clothing, and they were just trying to get out of there. They're like, you know, whatever. So they just ran out naked. The point that this uh, story should be trying to communicate to us here is that spiritual power comes from a relationship with God, not saying the right words. You know, they were claiming, you know, in the name of Jesus, who, whom Paul preaches. It's not good enough just to say some words. You know, that's not how we get in there with God. That's not how we unleash his power. It's by actually making contact with him and drawing close to him. Well, the story of what happened spread quickly throughout Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike, and a solemn fear descended upon the city in the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers actually confessed their sinful practices, and a number of them 
who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them in a public bonfire. The value of such books, of these books, were several million dollars. In some translations, or in most translations, it says 50,000 pieces of silver, which would be equivalent to several million dollars, maybe 10 million dollars or more. Now, <clears throat> this seems a little bit far-fetched. I mean, you know, you think of maybe the downtown Columbus Library containing millions of dollars worth of books, but you need to, rem you need to remember that these guys were living at a time when the printing press wasn't even around. So it was very expensive to produce um, written literature, uh, bound books. A lot of times they were in parchment or in vellum, which was made of animal skin. So these were very expensive. You know, these people realized that they were under spiritual bondage. So they decided that they were going to renounce this way of life completely, make a total break with it after coming to Christ. Really, this gives us sort of a pattern for, for us when we become believers to break away from a way of life marked by spiritual bondage. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about the dangers of engaging in occult practices. You know, the book of Deuteronomy explicitly teaches that we are to avoid trying to contact the dead or seeking out the future through fortune tellers. You know, in the modern day, this would be like uh, tarot cards, reading tea leaves, different things like that, astrology. That when we do that, we are potentially engaging a being, a spiritual being that doesn't have our best interest in mind. What God's enemy wants to do is to try to grant us favors in order to gain a certain level of influence in our lives. So it's really a dangerous practice for us to engage in this sort of thing. And, you know, some people I've encountered who dabble in this a little bit say, well, it's, it's sort of a joke. I, I do it just for fun. Uh, you know, I've never really encountered anything while doing this. Well, you know, the same reasoning could be applied to somebody who plays Russian roulette. You know, I pulled the trigger three or four times and nothing happened. Well, that doesn't mean that the next time you do it, something won't happen. And we need to consider that when we contact a spirit, we're opening ourselves up to potentially a spiritual being who wants to try to enslave us. You know, I use that analogy. If, you know, you... you have a knock on the door and you open up the door and here's this person, you know, in, in, a, in a really nice suit and a bright smile and they say, hey, can I come in? What are you going to say? Oh, yeah, come on in. Why don't you have a seat on my couch, perfect stranger? Be like, uh, no, who are you? You'd be suspicious, right? And so likewise, we, we shouldn't, you know, allow spiritual beings to gain entrance into our lives or to influence us without having, applying some skepticism. What this really points to is the fact that we're engaged in a spiritual battle. You know, we're, we're in a violent spiritual war that's raging between God and his enemy. You know, it raises the question, if we aren't involved in a spiritual struggle, then why aren't people coming to Christ in droves? If you have ever tried to share your faith, you know how difficult it is 
you know, a lot of times you'll take three steps forward and the person seems open and receptive to Christ, but then they'll take two steps backward. And it's like that for months or in some cases years. So if God's real and he loves people, then why isn't everybody turning to Christ? The answer? Because God has an enemy. And he hates God and the people whom God loves. And he seeks to destroy them and murder them. And uh, ultimately what he wants to do is he wants to separate non-Christian people by keeping them in spiritual bondage, permanently separating them from Christ. He knows that if he can block people from considering the message of Christ, that if they come to the end of their life without turning to him and receiving the forgiveness that he freely offers through the cross, that at that point, he's able to separate that person eternally from God. And God's agonized by this. In verse 20, we're told the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. So apparently, the elastic had snapped at some point where Paul was able to break the spiritual chains that, that held down this city. And as a result, many people came to Christ. All right, last narrative. Narrative five, a riot in, Ex or in Ephesus. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. Began with this guy named Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. So this guy was, uh, had a lucrative business creating these small silver shrines that were probably a replica of the shrine of Artemis there in Ephesus. He called these people together along with others employed in similar trades and addressed them as followers. Or as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. So it's clear what his motive is. He's uh, motivated by two things, dollars and cents. He can care less about the God. He knows that Paul is actually impinging upon his, his, um, his income. That's why he's angry. But as you've seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. Really? Handmade gods aren't real gods at all. That's uh, interesting. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. He says that this, their anger boiled and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was filled with com uh, confusion. Everyone rushed into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. So they drug these guys into the amphitheater, you know, with this um, bloodthirsty mob ready to, to, to tear Paul and his companions limb from limb. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him go in. He's like, no, no, let me go in there. You know, I have an opportunity to share the gospel. And they're like, no, no, not this time, Paul. You're going to die, Okay. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering into the amphitheater. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing, some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. 
<laughs> Imagine, you know, you're standing there and everyone's shouting one thing and a different thing. You're like, what's going on? You're like, I don't know. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, you know. <laughs> the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward, probably one of uh, their representatives, told him to explain the situation. They wanted him to differentiate the Jews from these Christians to show that they were not the same. And he motioned for silence and tried to speak, but when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for another two hours. Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, at last, the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. So this explains why uh, they built a temple there. Apparently, a meteorite fell uh, there in Ephesus, and maybe the meteorite resembled a face or something like that, and so they started worshiping it. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and don't do anything rash. You brought these men here, but they've stolen nothing from the temple and haven't spoken against our goddess. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session, and the officials can hear their case at once. Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. The mayor was concerned that if a riot fomented there in Ephesus, that it could actually awaken the Roman Empire and that they would send several legions of Roman soldiers to go in there and crush any disturbance that's going on there in the city. He says, I'm afraid that we're in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government since there's no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Then he dismissed them and they dispersed. And there you have the story of the riot in Ephesus. It's a little anticlimactic. You know, imagine you're one of those people who didn't know why you were there. You know, you're shouting things that you don't understand. And then suddenly you see people filing out of the amphitheater. And you're like, what's going on? And you're like, I don't know. We're just going home. You're like, oh, man. <laughs> so the, the question you might be asking yourself here is, how do, you, how do we weave all of these seemingly dissimilar narratives together into one picture? We have to believe that Luke isn't just putting together these hodgepodge of stories, that he actually intends to communicate something through this. And you sort of have to read between the lines. Throughout, you could tell that Luke was splicing in these statements that suggested that there was an incredible movement of God in this city and really in this region. And that these events were the events surrounding that. So let's draw some conclusions. I think you can gather a few things from this this uh, entire narrative. First of all, God orchestrates spiritual movements. Paul wasn't responsible for this. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 17, he spoke to these intellectuals at the Areopagus in Athens and didn't get a hearing at all. And it's likely that he formulated this incredible speech, crafted it, and it fell on deaf ears. Whereas here, he met people who were spiritually hungry and there was a wildfire of excitement about Christ that, it, that, that ran throughout the city. And so God's the one who orchestrates these spiritual movements. 
Secondly, he provides workers for the harvest. You know, he envisioned Apollos being a major player in the early church. He knew that he needed to grab this guy because of his incredible potential and his background. And as a result, God actually put Priscilla and Aquila in his life. And he'll do that. Where if he anticipates a real movement in a city or even in a part of town, he will bring workers in order to make sure that the the harvest is reaped. Jesus, in fact, says that we should be constantly praying that God would send workers into the harvest. Third, movements encounter spiritual opposition. You know, every inch that we gain for Christ will be met with opposition. We're going to have to pay the price. And, you know, unless we have the spiritual realm opened up to us to see that what's actually going on here is a battle for people's souls. If we don't gain that revelation, then we're really missing the big picture of what's going on, what God's doing here on earth. Fourth, equipping good workers fuels a movement. You know, we can never actually spark a movement. That's God's job. But we certainly can do things that will inhibit a movement by not training people, by not playing our part in equipping younger believers to be able to go and win others and equip them into maturity in Christ. So we need to play our part. And finally, spiritual movements encounter persecution. I've noticed that in recent months or even in the last year, I've heard numerous reports where people in the community People in our schools that we attend have um, really ramped up a lot of the opposition toward our church and toward Christianity. And, um, you know, on the one hand, it's very discouraging, but on the other, it makes you think, I wonder if we're actually doing something good here. You'd almost have to be worried if nothing was happening. You know, we, we were just sort of smooth sailing. That would suggest that we're not, you know, the evil one doesn't view us as a threat. Yeah, Lord, thanks that uh, you fill our lives with uh, purpose and meaning by being able to serve you. I personally want to thank you that I got to see with my own eyes an incredible movement of your spirit. But mostly, Lord, um, we're thankful that we actually have a relationship with you. You know, we get to participate in this work, but uh, that you want us to have access to you and that you have uh, sent your son Jesus to come and die for us. And so um, I pray for those of us who uh, might be wondering where our life is headed and uh, whether we're actually going to, um, you know, be in heaven one day when we die. I pray that uh, we would consider turning to you right now and uh, receiving the forgiveness that Jesus freely offers through his cross. And uh, we thank you for anyone who did that in his name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.